Hi, we're Lauren Roof and Rachel Jacobson, and this is Mystical Thinking, a podcast for exploring spiritual identity through the lens of the mystics, thinkers, and everyday people. Today we have Maria Bowler with us. Maria is a writer and coach from Canada, living in the American Midwest. She helps people make their best ideas and values real every day in the face of late capitalism. You can find Maria online at mariabowler.com and on Instagram at Maria V. Bowler. Maria, we are so excited to be speaking with you today. We're both big fans of yours, and um, we'd really like to start this off by hearing about what brought you to the work that you do. Wow, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. So I had a, I have a winding path like uh, many people, but um, working one-on-one with people started originally when I was a spiritual director, but it's had different faces. I taught creative writing um, in a university setting, and that's where I was sort of explicitly teaching uh, kids how to discover what they really wanted to say. Before that, I was an editor. Um, in all the contexts of my work, I'm always trying to sort of like dig underneath the surface and help people find um, what it is that is truest for them. And that took on a bunch of different faces. But I found that in in coaching, I could bring together that sort of exploratory stuff and also. Uh, figure out how to make it really real in people's lives. Because once you know that something is true for you, whether it's a a creative work or um, a way of expressing yourself, like a a, a cause you really care about, or um, just like finding that there's a disconnect between what you're actually doing and what you're actually feeling and thinking, what your real values are, uh, bridging that gap, became really important to me. So after leaving my MFA and um, I just evolved my work as a spiritual director in by getting more coaching training. So it brings together contemplative practice and modern neuroscience and as well as sort of my background in in craft from a, a writing perspective. That's so interesting, Maria. And I think what a, I mean, that process that you help people through, I think a lot of us are there right now. And we're just in the shift of the last couple of years and thinking about what is true for us and what we want to do with our life, our creativity. And the intersection of spirituality and creativity is super fascinating. So we're really excited to hear more about those pieces and what, what that process can look like. Yeah. Yeah. For me, spirituality was always sort of this undercurrent and that that means such different things to different people, right? Like if you say spirituality and creativity, it can feel like very abstract, but what's, what's so obvious is that like whenever we face a blank page or a blank canvas or just like any sort of open space, um, how do we approach it? What is happening? What are we in interaction with? I think that's where, um, we can really see some cool, um, some cool spiritual principles at work, some like learning things about ourselves. It's such a wild, wild thing to make something out of quote unquote nothing. Yeah. And that relationship with the unknown. Absolutely. It's such an act of faith. I mean, 
Yeah, it, it really is. And it's leaning into this kind of intuition in ourselves that there will be something that that we don't see currently. And I think it can be some of the hardest blocks for me as a writer, specifically in my craft, to understand um, what my hesitations and fears are in that space because there is nothing and you get 10 steps ahead of yourself and you start to worry and project you know, your fears onto whatever you're creating. And so this work, I think, is really important. But honestly, not it's not uh, common to come across creative coaches, at least for, for myself. I haven't come across many. Um, but I've interacted with the work of, of different writers who have helped, helped me along in that journey, like uh, Julia Cameron, um, who wrote The Artist's Way. And so... Yeah, I think there's something too really feminine and nurturing about your both your work and Julia's as well. Um, that's really needed and attractive in this space because I think a lot of the authors that, at least that I read as a writer, who were encouraging me to write were very like stern and almost parental, and kind of like you know ass in chair and write. <laughs> and it's like, well, that doesn't make me want to create anything. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm curious too, of just like what you think that kind of feminine energy is bringing to people. Cause it's obviously needed. Um, I, I, I love that question and that observation about the sort of stern, the stern advice from, um, just anyone who's trying to help creative people. It's like, well, it's all about discipline. And if, um, my experience is anything like any, everyone else's experience, I think that um, we have internalized plenty of messages about discipline. We're not lacking in enough shoulds. So that's generally not what we need to hear. Um, and I found that to be true in my own practice, like a lot of emphasis on like the struggle and the hard work of, of the creative process. And you're just like this art martyr bleeding onto the canvas on the page and and I like a huge part of me was like I don't know if I even want to do it if that's what it is but then of course another part of me um and I think is this is true of like a lot of other people it's like well we want to be serious we want to be good at this so I think there's it comes from this idea of craft that became uh (laughs) this had took on a lot of like uh, masculine overtones like craft is muscular, muscular prose, like, you know, Ernest Hemingway. There's a lot of sort of like, this is all about bringing your your strength to the page. And one of my hobby horses is that creativity exists in the dynamic between structure and flow. And too much structure, we get brittle, we get over-controlling, we get like limited and closed and too much flow and we feel powerless and we feel passive and it's maybe not even about like too much or one or the other but like the quality of structure and the quality of flow so flow is where i would say like maybe traditional feminine principles have been placed historically like receiving like openness to collaborating with the world with something that you can't quite see like those are hugely it's a hugely important skill and capacity um and when it's at its less skillful 
expression when when we're in flow we're just kind of like feeling like we're waiting for something to come and give us what's true when we might already know so that would be like the less skillful expression or we're like waiting to feel strong when we like already are so and it can turn into sort of feeling like apathetic and turning in on ourselves and I've I don't know if that sounds oh, at all yes. familiar. It <laughs> definitely does. It's a cycle. Well, and Maria, I love that you bring that up. I think there's that space where maybe an inspiration hits. You're in touch with an idea or something that's sparking your curiosity. But it does feel like there's a time and a place for moving ahead, even when the inspiration maybe isn't there. The discipline, maybe I like that you use the word structure because that feels a little more invitational than, than discipline. But the interaction of those two and how we make space for for the ebb and flow of those different pieces is, is interest. It feels sensitive in, in terms of how we learn to engage both. Gosh, yes. And I wish that this was just, this is what we were taught in any program that's teaching you, teaching you any creative craft is like how to determine where you are between structure and flow. And also like whose structure are you borrowing? So oftentimes we just like pick up on a set of parameters for ourselves like, oh, okay, well, I should write at this time each day, or I should write in this way. And like, that's, that's structure, but like, is it ours? Is it adaptable to our actual intentions? Or is it just like there for its own sake? And we end up feeling trapped in it. So I think it's just knowing that we're always going to be moving in between these two parts of our capacities, the capacity to like, be willful and create lines and um, sort of assert uh, a boundary somewhere to help ourselves flow within. And so it's like, is the structure working or is this flow working? Do I need to receive more? Do I need to receive in on the flow end of things, right? Like, am I taking in things that are actually supporting this work? If I'm gonna be open, what am I open to right now, for example? Yeah, I'm yeah, it sounds like you really take people through these processes of yeah, I'm just like curious how you do this work in terms of when you get a new person who's coming to you and like how does that work in your in your coaching and do you like what kinds of things do you discuss or what practices do you offer and how does that look for for a client of yours? Yeah. It's so specific to the client and their own aims, but often the first task is to uncover the actual goal. <laughs> so we come in with these goals that we think we have, and sometimes they are correct for us. And sometimes we realize that we picked it arbitrarily. So let's say someone comes in and you look at like, where are you at now? So what is your it might be a concrete creative practice or it might be um, something more fluid. And what are you, what's, what's nagging at you? So it could be a book idea. So we would look at that idea and we'd see, you know, maybe it's already in development. Maybe it's just a, a thought and get under the hood of that thing that's nagging at you. What is it about? Because from there, you can figure out what structure is actually going to support that idea. We may find that it's not a novel that you really want to write, 
but you thought that you needed to write a novel to be serious, for example. And so you actually want to write a bunch of like really wild short stories. And then, you know, you build out from there. So intention and like connecting as closely to the intention at the beginning is really important. And then it evolves, of course, as you develop a relationship with this thing that's nagging at you. Yes, I love that you start with that place of intention. I think it's such an important launch point for so many creatives, but it also can be one of the hardest things to do is just to start. I've also noticed in my own work as a writer that place of tension, that blank page or blinking cursor kind of staring back at you. And I wonder if you could speak a bit more to the anxiety around that place for people, because I know it's a big one for me. That's such a great observation about the site of tension. That's such a great observation, because often I find that um, my clients come in with a tension of like, I really want to uh, create something, or there's this part of my life that feels t- that that feels like it's calling me, but it's at odds with this other thing that's in my life. And it could be like, I really want to. I really want to uh, write about my spiritual life as like in a way that feels like really true to who I am right now, but my community that I care about might not get it, for example. And so what that, instead of like, what our brain is gonna wanna do is solve a problem like that by coming up with some mm, like perfect thing to do that avoids the tension, that lets you stay safe and check all the boxes. But if we go into the heart of that, we might find that that thing that seems like the obstacle to what you wanna do is is hugely important to why you want to create the thing in the first place. So like, you're afraid of what your community might think if you write in a certain way, but you wouldn't care so much about creating this if you didn't feel like someone needed to hear it. So it can become energizing, for example. Well, and you that's an interesting approach and, and way to look at it too, Maria, because I think you I've heard you talk a lot about, well, trust, one, and how that interacts with creativity as well as what you just mentioned, just the safety piece and and the parts of us that don't want to take a risk or that feels like there's too much at stake if we take a risk. Um, But there's kind of an edge to creativity, to engaging with the unknown, to creating something new. Um, Right. And I, yeah, that's, it can be scary. So scary. What does that look like for you? Well, I think that I find myself often in the more structured space um, in being productive, in um, kind of duty-oriented things, right? Like just the 
the tasks of life take up a lot of space. So I think for me, it's, it begins with, um, honoring those, those sparks of curiosity or interest. Um, but yeah, late, like the last maybe year or two, I haven't felt like I've been taking a lot of risks. Like I feel a little dormant creatively. Mm -hmm. Um, and I help people, I think in their creative work and working with authors and writers and, um, and I was teaching workshops right before the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I think in, in the sense right now, I don't feel like I'm taking a lot of risks, but I think I'm, I'm starting that process new in some different areas. So, or kind of starting back in the beginning, I guess. That's so interesting. Yeah. Like, it's funny that you, you just surfaced this, this feeling of being dormant. And I think that's so, that's so real. And it's such a suggestive word because it says like, there's, there's all this life, right. That, that just is sleeping right now. And, but to have it kind of wake up, then that is a risk. And sometimes parts of ourselves really need to be dormant for a while and it's totally okay. <laughs> in fact, it can be really important for our nervous system, right? To not constantly be forcing ourselves into um, risk. And then there comes a certain point where it feels really risky to not attend to parts of ourselves. And that starts to kind of feel really uncomfortable. Right. And maybe when the urgency or the desire gets big enough it's you, you take that step or you push yourself to kind of to that next stage well in something that you mentioned earlier that jumped out at me just around this idea of serious being serious and taking yourself seriously I don't know if that you said the, the latter part specifically but but this dynamic of, of I think of valuing our work and taking it seriously but in some places it feels really important to take ourselves less seriously and be able to play and and allow ourselves to be a beginner or to experiment. I think there was even a quote that you, that Lauren and I both really resonated with on your, that you shared online that, that you, and you said, every beautiful thing I've ever done came from the belief. I'm willing to screw this up a tiny bit. Here goes. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. I love it. I love it. That's, oh, I love that. See, you just surfaced another attention that is just so productive. Like, I wish that if I could go back and, and teach university uh, without any of the bureaucracies that make me, uh, that held me back at that particular department, I would teach something on, like, serious play, like taking play and joy really seriously what that would look like might be just yeah. making choices to commit your energy to it and that like, or your time. And that does feel like a risk. Like it's very, it's very courageous. It's not this frivolous like hobby to say, I trust, I trust my willingness to play. I trust my willingness to like screw it up because in that there's so much that's valuable for me and for other people. Right. And that word, I think frivolous, it feel, it can feel very frivolous. Right. And I think it's such a central theme of what Maria, your work does is you allow people the freedom and the permission to play and to explore 
and to find dead ends if they need to. And that's such a, it runs so anti to the current of productivity and measuring KPIs and brand. And I think like, at least for my own creative journey, that has been a major insight is just letting it all belong. Like letting these disparate parts of my personality, mm. my curiosity, my interests, not not um, feeding the temptation to groom them into a cohesive whole, like letting them just be what they are. And I think that is what authenticity comes from. I think when people see that you're actually honoring those parts of yourself, it creates more permission within that space for other people to play and explore and to create because they're, they're seeing what you're doing and you're doing it in an honest way. Right. How much, how powerful is it to be less groomed because other people can feel that like it just has a different vibration. Right. And I think what's on the other side of it is like detaching ourselves from this belief that we are the work that we create like we're not it is an expression of us and it's an extension of us but it's not us and so you know writers particularly talk about this when they release something into the world and they get all all these reviews and you know 90% of them are positive but then you get the 10% that are really negative and how crushing that can feel um and the importance of like distancing yourself almost from what you create because it isn't you. Um, I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, Maria. Ooh. Okay. I love that because um, there's this kind of distance that from our work that is, that allows us to feel free, right? The where we're not so attached to uh, our, to it, like we are not one-to-one with the work so that people's reactions to it become reactions to our, you know, <laughs> survival, <laughs> like that become a threat to our survival. And then there is a kind of, of distance from our work that I think we often experience under capitalism, which is like a kind of alienation where we are uh, simply machines to produce. And that feels like a kind of detachment that feels terrible, like to the soul. So first I'll speak to like the, the kind of detachment that helps us feel free. And what I would want to make a distinction between is like what it looks like and what it feels like to have a whole self-investment in what you create, where you're willing to bring all those weird disparate parts to the table and know that, and when you're doing that, you are aware that the, the self that people are criticizing or what they're seeing is so much smaller than who you, like, who you really are. And I mean, I think people use the word ego, like it's our ego that's offended when people don't like our work, it's not our soul. It's not our like intention. So saying, okay, what would it look like to be wildly in, in your work, 
where you're not saying like, okay, this is my, like, uh, this is not, <laughs> this doesn't have to touch the part of me that's a, a partner or the part of me that's a parent or a community member. It's like so separate where we might even feel like it's this, yeah, this frivolous side thing. We're like, okay, I'm going to put like everything that I, all my thoughts that are informed by all these parts of my life, like into this thing and what comes of it, like it becomes this thing, this work, right? That is not me because it's simply something that people are interacting with. And if they like it or don't like it, the part of me that's offended is such like a small part of me. It's just my ego. It's just the part of me that wants to be like accepted into the tribe and to survive. So that's that, that's that tension, I guess, of detachment. Like for me, I think I tried to be like detached to such a degree that I ended up feeling like I was just like an art producer, like putting together, you know, things that were nice seeming, but didn't feel as, as wild and interesting as I really wanted it to be because I was so afraid of like having my ego invested and that seems like a bad thing to do. So I think it gets really complicated. <laughs> so just to know, like, the ego's going to be there. It, it has some, some desires for survival and for uh, to be seen that are totally valid. And the wise self, as you say, like, our, our soul is what is really going to be overseeing all of it. And that is, is <laughs> like, to be trusted, that we can just trust that, like, okay, we are bigger than that small part of ourself. And just to explain what I was referring to when I was talking about the kind of detachment that sometimes we have from our work when we are, like, when we're alienated from it. You know all those, like, office movies where you see these, like, workers in cubicles and they really play up, like, <laughs> the ennui, <laughs> like, like that feeling even though a lot of us aren't in offices anymore I do think a lot of us feel that same kind of like mm, detachment that like soulless quality and that comes from this this way of thinking that we're all under that says like we are what we produce like you were like what you were saying and Everything needs to be a production unit. Your time is a production unit. Your uh, your energy needs to be, quote unquote, like maximized for someone else's profit. Like that's where I think the kind of detachment that we're, we experience um, and it's like seeping into our homes when we're like worrying about efficiency all the, when we're, you know, quote unquote, not even working. It's not even technically our work hours. Like that's the kind of, of detachment that we we want to be suspicious of right that get, that's like seems like the extreme that we can get to right that that um that kind of detachment feels problematic but i like how you say just kind of we can be suspect of that um and something that you said earlier maria about the place that ego can hold in that process it, it reminds me of um I think I read it in Big Magic or heard Elizabeth Gilbert speak to this, but just about fear and like what place um, 
what place can fear hold in our creative process? And instead of like kicking it to the curb and all this like kind of very um, intense language about what we do with our fear um, versus, and she talked about like, hey, fear is going to be in the car. Like you can listen to it and validate it as a voice in this process, but it's not going to be in the driver's seat. And and I think what you presented too is this idea of of ego, you know, like it's going to be there, right? And it's it's a piece of um, of the process, but you know what what part will it play, and how much um, how much of a voice are we going to give it? I guess in terms of the risks that we take and the work that we engage in. Yeah, fear is a friend. I would go even further than Elizabeth Gilbert there, although I I like that imagery that fear can be in the car. But and that, you know, I think a lot of narrative about fear that you were talking about before where it's like get your butt in the chair is very much like about conquering fear about having this like dominating relationship with fear and no I I think fear is a friend because when we can feel fear that means that there is something in us uh an old thought or belief or like an experience that we have that is coming up to our awareness and we can hear what it has to say and it might need to be soothed in that moment it might be something like i'm afraid that you're going to uh, alienate yourself from your family if you write that and like that's a very worthy thing to have brought to our attention because part of us is genuinely concerned about our family. And so like, that's a beginning to a conversation with ourselves like, hey, like, can I do this in a way that feels safe for me from your wise self? Can I, can I still do this and care about the thing that my fear wants me to care about? Maybe, how can I do that? So it's this really productive, it can be a really productive relationship because we're all, we all carry these experiences and these like unconscious fears and they're not, they're not trivial often. Sometimes we're ready to move on from them, but yeah. I love that. That's such a good way to look at it too, that they, they really can inform our work and they are part of, of what we have to contend with when we create. Something Maria that, you, that Lauren and I were thinking about in, in exploring creativity and intuition is how we get out of, and since this is something that you help people do, like, are there ways that we can get out of this heady, rational, linear energy? Um, Things to do that can kind of help us tap into more of um, maybe that feminine energy or less of the right-brained space that we tend to operate in. Totally. Let me ask you, when you're in your heady energy, how does it feel in your body? I don't know because I'm in my head. Um, yeah, I think it's, well, it's a little disconnected, I think. Mm-hmm. A little floaty, maybe? Yeah. A little ungrounded. Yeah. Okay. So it's so funny, right? Like, we, it's, we can feel being disembodied in our body in a weird way. Like, we know what that feels like. And so, first of all, just even noticing that. Like, whoa. 
I am like very in my head. And there's other ways that we can notice when we're in our head. Like <laughs> if we notice that we've been uh, just sitting there doing nothing, we're like, oh, and you look at your watch, you're like, oh my gosh, I've been worrying about this. I've been fretting around the house, like, or sitting there, not even aware of what I've been doing, worrying about this. Like, that's a call that, hey, okay, you're in your head right now. It looks different for different people. Or I notice myself continually checking my email. Like, so lots of ways um, that that can come to our attention. And when that's in our attention, we then have a choice to say like, okay, so if that's what that feels like in my body, what else is going on in my body? So you're using your awareness of even being disconnected from your body, which you can get really good at it, doing it like with faster and faster. Um, and then say, okay, in my body, what's going on? Often there's something going on in our emotions. So we like, that's a, that might be a reason why we're in our head because we actually have a really strong emotion that we're not even feeling like we can be with. And, and that emotion can be really, really helpful. So it could be uh, like, just, just think of it as, as a bodily sensation without like the story. And it's like a charge of, it could be fear, it could be sadness, it could be actually just like excitement or like restlessness. So that might be there. Or there could be this lower gut thing happening in the body. And, you know, our gut feeling tends to want to be in motion. It tends to want to, like, set down boundaries. So that can be also super helpful. <laughs> Anger is often felt kind of, like, lower down in the body. Um, but if so if even just noticing we're, out, we're in our head, checking in to see what's going on, that can, we find different kinds of energy there. And then we have choices like, all right, what do I want to do with this energy? If we trust it, if we trust that our head is not the only place where we can find direction and find energy, like even just that possibility, like, hey, maybe my, my heart has some, <laughs> some direction for me here. Maybe my gut does. Just knowing that, hey, like we have other centers of intelligence here other than our head, and then tuning into what those feel like in our body can be really helpful. That's so good. It's, I totally relate to the thing of being, well, just almost, I mean, whether it's checking email or being on my phone, I just realizing like you're kind of in a whole other time and space and it's not grounded in where you actually are. Um, yeah, that's those practices. I, and it sounds like too, it's a lot of it starts with observing some of that mindfulness, you know, and just noticing without, the scripts and the narratives, which takes is takes a lot of practice. I feel like that stuff, you know, it's easy to talk about but when it actually comes to doing it and, and beginning to kind of change our approach to um, what's coming up for us or, or the ways that we're getting lingering too often in kind of this heady space. Um, it's it's a big shift. I could talk all day on the topic of being stuck in your head in this rational energy, because I think for me, 
what this is reminding me of so much is a conversation around Enneagram. I think one of the first times I learned about the three intelligence centers being the head, the heart, and the gut, it just moved me because it made so much sense to the ways in which I had experienced life and the ways in which I hadn't. So tapping into the heart, tapping into impulses, tapping into a sense of direction that wasn't, you know, rational or having an explanation or an argument for. And that for me was really groundbreaking as a creative. Yeah, Lauren, you're, well, Maria, it sounds like you're operating, you're, you're speaking with two people on the head type, because I'm a six, so Lauren, I probably have some somewhat similar experiences, and I, I find myself gravitating towards a lot of people in the heart space, too, and, and like fours, and yeah, people that maybe are more in the feeling space. That, that's such a cool observation, yes, I guess I didn't mention in my bio, yeah, I, I, um, worked a lot with the Enneagram before and that does definitely like influence my um the way that I'm looking at this and it's a super helpful lens to see what your default is going to be the in the you know the work that sort of developed into the Enneagram of personality is is mystical work and it says that you know as humans we are not our simply our mind we are Mm-hmm. Or what we think of as our mind, like our, our, um, and the mind is really good at coming up with distinctions and that's its proper, uh, usage. It's good at saying this is not that creating categories. And so even using the mind to get out of the mind is really, is really nice. Cause you can say like, Hey, what category is this? What category of energy is this that I'm in right now? Like, Oh, I'm in my head. Okay. What else is there? There's the heart or there's the the gut. So using the mind for like awareness of like, hey, I'm noticing that like this behavior that I do is often happens when I am anxious and not really wanting to feel anxious. So it can be our friend. Yeah. That's so good. And you mentioned the mystics, Maria. How have the mystics informed like this journey for you personally? Uh, so, gosh, such a such a big and beautiful question. Um, and well-placed because I really think that one of the, the biggest ways that it informed my path is to expand my sense of who I am beyond my conscious thought. So different mystics like the... Um, medieval theologians talking about the erotic relationship that we could have with the divine, the like <laughs> entrance entry points through the body. Those are all, um, those are all hugely influential and more, yeah, more, more recently, I think the, the mystics that I've been engaging have been probably my like my main go-to is the philosopher like Jillian Rose who who really was highly attuned to what it takes to live as a uh, a person in the world amidst conflict she studied the 
the, the 20th century and the horrors of the 20th century. So like, what does it mean to be um, a human who's like highly attuned to the, the violence that is so overwhelming and um, inescapable while being attuned to the dimension of of creation of of hope of of love and not in an escapist way at all her whole thing was risk so actually it's funny that you you brought up risk i think that is um a, a place where the mystics can actually point us when we don't um when we let them when we don't um use spirituality to be overly sentimental or to escape the world. And I know that that is something that really matters to you too, too, as well. Right. I really think of the mystics as kind of the patron saints of creatives. I think of them often the way that I first encountered them was kind of as these uh, withdrawn ascetic type people sitting on stone floors in monasteries, but what's more true about them is that they are really having a history of activism. They were people who saw ahead of their time and were willing to take a risk and step out and be weird and be misunderstood. And I think for anyone trusting a process that's inside of them, but that's not within their control, that is a beautiful example to have as a forerunner and a very important one from my perspective. And what's also important about them, I think, is the way in which they emphasize the humanity of the journey and the mistakes and the stumbling, which is so much a mirror to the creative process. I'm always interested, too, in the ways that faith or spirituality, like, how does it get us more in touch with our humanity and with the people around us and versus something that like the escapism, right. And, and the ways that, that, you know, it can end up being something that the alternative to that, I guess, which is, um, but I love, I love your take on that, Maria. I, I, I love that. I'm just sitting with that, what you said about how spirituality gets us is in deeper touch with our humanity and, I think that has so much to do with what we've been talking about, about like honoring all the parts of ourselves that are all included in our humanity. And like, even just simply saying that all of those are included and worthy of attention, worthy of like bringing together into the light, whether it is in through creative expression or simply in a practice of awareness that is a way of that in which we are like saying we are both we are fully human the dark stuff that's there the the gnarly stuff like that is all included and and look I can hold it in this space of love what like that that does feel like attention but it is exactly what makes us whole and better able to be present to the horrors of our time and create from that instead of collapsing in on ourselves or forcing parts of ourselves away. Whenever we're forcing parts of ourselves away, we're going to 
do the same thing to others. I'm wondering as we kind of move toward the end of this conversation, Maria, what are some of the resources that you have leaned on or coached others to lean on in times of this creative tension we're speaking of, um, kind of for inspiration and direction as they move through the creative process? I know you mentioned the philosopher Jillian Rose. I mentioned um, Julia Cameron as a resource and several other mystics, uh, Teresa of Avila was a really important one to me, but I'm just wondering what are those wells that you recommend that someone with a creative gift or a story or painting that needs to be born, who do they turn to and what do you recommend for us? Yeah, gosh, so many. So, um, M.C. Richards wrote a book called Centering, and she was a potter and a writer, worked at the Black Mountain College, um, and it's all about all like, being with our whole humanity as a, as a creative process. So that is hugely influential to me. Um, the work of Cynthia Bourgeau would be a great resource. Um, for writers, um, if you want to write by Brenda Wayland, U-E-L-A-N-D, is a very playful look at, um, but not frivolous, <laughs> that, that tension of um, a, a creative process as including the, um, the gnarly thoughts in the unconscious mind. So um, Brenda Wayland and Natalie Goldberg, all kind of another writer who... Um, is in the Buddhist tradition and talks about um, creativity from that aspect, although less explicitly. Um, I'll really honor the subconscious mind or the unconscious mind, and that's that's what we've been sort of touching on a little bit here with with different parts of the self. And um, <laughs> Julian Rose, if you like um, if you like philosophy, um, I love her memoirs, Love's work, and her un unfinished memoir parody. So as well, but also just DM me if you want rec <laughs> recommendations. Um, I would love to, to say more people based on what people really are, are curious about. Thank you, Maria. I know that I speak for both Rachel and myself when I say that we feel so lucky to have had you on today and um, are really just gleaning so much wisdom from your creative process and um, just all the resources you've given us today um, when we feel stuck or unsure about what to do next in, in the process of creating something. So um, it's just been a really inspiring time and uh, we can't wait to share it with others. So thanks. Thank you. I, I just, think this work is so important and if anyone is called to creative expression and spiritual curiosity and expansion that they are meant to come alive as much as possible so anything that feeds them exactly like your podcast is is sacred sacred work thanks so much for listening 
We're so grateful you are here, and we hold this pause for future conversation. Until next time.